Hi. I'm glad you're here. Uh, I want to talk about secrets, the nature of secrets, um, how it connects to wine, how it connects to uh, tikkun, starting again, fixing, fixing the past, even fixing past lives, even fixing um, the entire world. And to, uh, to, to look at this in, in sort of the, 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 the broadest scope and um, let's begin just um, with, with the idea. It's actually, it's an opinion from Rabbi Meir in uh, Gomorrah Sanhedrin, page 70, um, which is that the fruit from the tree of knowledge was actually a grape. And that what Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, uh, imbibed, if you will, was, was, was wine, was, were, were, were grapes. And, and this, is, this is very, very interesting for, for a lot of different reasons. Um, one of the things that, that we know about wine, and grapes and wine is really, it's kind of the, the same idea. By the way, something very, very interesting. Grapes uh, grow on a vine. Um, a vine is not a tree. Um, and yet, we, we say the, the blessing over grapes is, is bere pri ha'etz, God who brings f- fruit from the tree. And so, on a very deep level, this is a reference that the tree, the etzadas, the tree of knowledge, that it was a that the fruit from the tree was a grape, because otherwise you wouldn't make this blessing over the grape. You wouldn't reference it back to a tree. What tree are we talking about? Grapes from come from vines. Why are we talking about trees? Because it was the fruit from the tree of knowledge. This is just a little hint to it. Um, wine, because when again when we're talking about grapes, we're talking about wine. Wine is the gematria, the numerical equivalent of, of sod. Sod means secrets. And it says that um, in, the, in the Talmud, that when the wine goes in, the secrets come out. And so there's a very interesting correlation between wine and revelation. Because when the wine goes in, the secrets come out. In other words, you reveal your true self. And we know, and the, the Talmud actually discusses this, that one of the tests, if you will, or one of the barometers of um, someone's personality is what kind of drunk they are. You know, you have a lot of um, varieties of drunks. You have, you know, angry drunks, where just they get drunk and rah, it's just like rage comes out. And then you realize that that's really a, an aspect of their personality. And then you have lots of different types of uh, uh, personalities that emerge uh, when, when, when people drink. Um, I just pass out. So, you know, um, uh, it's not, not so exciting. <laughs> um, so, so anyway... Um, but, but this is particularly important, I think, because I want to develop it in, in this way. The idea that when, 
that that the tree of knowledge was 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 a grape, which is again like wine, and that when wine goes in, secrets come out. That wine and secrets are the same numerical value, yayin and sod. That the inside becomes the outside. Now, this is a very important theme among the sages, the inside becoming the outside. Because we'll develop it in a moment, but why is that so important? Because the whole idea of the narrative of of history, of of the trajectory of of, of this world, um, of all of human civilization since the beginning, the whole storyline, if you will, of reality, is the revelation of God's oneness. That's all that's going on. God's oneness is being increasingly revealed. That's all that's going on. And, um, and on a personal level, remember, each person is a microcosm of the universe. And we see that in many, many ways. But the most simple poetic way of phrasing it is the way the Talmud does, that if you save one person, it's like you save the whole world. But you see it in many, many ways that a person is equal to the, is like a world, is like a miniature world. And so it's very significant when the sages say that the mark of a refined human being is that their outside should reflect their inside. And the way they learn that is in a very interesting way. I mean, they they know it anyway, but the illustration that they give is a very beautiful illustration that the ark that held the tablets of the Ten Commandments of the Torah from God, the Luchos, the ark was made out of gold. And it was constructed in a very beautiful way. It was gold on the inside and gold on the outside. And so the sages say that just like it's gold on the inside and gold on the outside, so a person's inside should be reflected on their outside. And again, if there's implied within that is a very positive, very beautiful um, understanding of what a human being is and what human nature is. In other words, there's this assumption that you want the inside to be revealed. You know, which if you think about it, you might say, you know, whatever you do, you know, we're going to this party and... Please, whatever you do, don't reveal your true self, please, you know. It's like, I'd like to be friends with these people. So, so, so if you think about it, if you think about it, the fact that the sages are starting from this point of view that we want our true selves to be revealed is actually a very utopian, very beautiful view of what human nature is. And in fact, we say this prayer, which is one of my favorite prayers because of how positive it is, um, every morning, before we do the morning blessings, uh, in this particular Nusach anyway, and we start off, we say, Elokai Nishama Shenadati Bi Taharahi, which means, very straightforward, my God, the soul you placed within me is pure. And that's got to be our, our starting point, an understanding that, that we have pure souls, and that we can put a lot of muck on top of them, and things like that, but that's only a superficial overlay on top of our pure souls, which remain pure. And we say it every single day. We recite it. My God, the soul you put in me is pure. 
So, so again, let's, 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 let's understand what we're saying here, because we're going to develop something that will become increasingly larger. Okay? The idea being that the first disconnect in history, literally the first disconnect, I'll tell you what I mean more by that in a moment, was when we ate from the tree of knowledge, when God told us not to eat from the tree of knowledge. And just, just so you know, because a lot of people um, have a mistaken understanding of this, and this is, a, this is really a, a, a primary idea in terms of understanding uh, God and God's relationship with us, a lot of people think that the very first bit of instruction that, that God gave humanity was don't eat from the tree of knowledge. And it's not true. It says... God says, eat from all of the trees. So it starts with a positive. Engage life. Enjoy the beauty of this world. But don't eat from that tree. In other words, we have to understand that we're supposed to engage. And there's a positive. It begins with a positive, not a negative. It begins with a positive exhortation to explore and embrace. However, understand that there are parameters. Which is, which is appropriate, since God is the master and we're his creations. We're, 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 we are not the master of the world. We did not create the world. It's appropriate that there should be parameters to our behavior. We have to understand that as a premise. But within the context of understanding that the entire world was created for us and for its beauty and for us to engage in it. That's first and foremost. But that also comes with, with some responsibilities as well. And so, and so, the first disconnect comes when we go straight for the thing that we're told not to do, which is, I guess, so human. I mean, if you, if you think about it, it's, it's like, it's, but the, the pull is very strong, and, and why we did it is, you know, you can spend years discussing exactly why we did it and what the nature of the test was, and and all the rest. It's a very, very big subject. It wasn't a simple act of rebellion or pettiness or whatever it is. It was an enormous Herculean challenge that was presented to Adam and Eve with this, with this particular command not to eat from the tree of knowledge. But nonetheless, nonetheless, we, we did it right away. And so the Ramban, if I understand him properly, basically says that what happened there was there was a disconnect between the mind and the heart. And so that's one of the things that, to this day, we're trying to repair, which is this unity of mind and heart. And when we ate from the tree, there was that disconnect. And when you have a disconnect, then all of a sudden you're capable of exhibiting a, a schizophrenia or a duality in terms of your actions, in terms of manifesting yourself, where your outside and your inside can be very different terrains, very different landscapes, different worlds. But what we want is for the pure soul to exhibit itself in the world in a, in a, in a pure way. Just like we want God's oneness not to be hidden and not for there to be this revealed aspect to him and that simultaneously there's evil and there's all these blockages where we can't perceive him and we don't know what he's doing and everything like that. So just like we don't want a duality in ourselves, meaning that we want our inside, 
our pure self to manifest itself in a pure way on the outside, so it is we want God's oneness to reveal itself and to manifest itself without any of the blockages or clipot or, or, or question marks or whatever it is that we have. And somehow all of this is, is, is phrased within the paradigm of grapes and wine. And let me develop it further. In, in uh, Echa, so this is what we read on Tisha B'Av, so this is like, you know, very sad. It's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the holy temples and, and all the rest. It's our, our worst moment, right? We read Echa, the book of, in English, it's called Lamentations. And interestingly, it talks about how God has put us like in a wine press, and it describes that process, that it's sort of like we're like grapes and we're being squeezed and crushed, right? So there you see exile framed within terms of grapes and wine. You know, that's, that's, that's very compelling. Another compelling thing is that in the Gomorrah, it describes Olam the perfected world that we're all heading toward. The world is evolving. This is a very important Jewish concept, you know, it's funny because people get caught up with Darwinism and it's sort of like, well, is Darwinism, Darwinism seems to contradict the Torah and it seems to be the opposite of the Torah and it seems like, you know, you've got to pick one or the other, either you're on board with the Torah or you're on board with Darwin, what is it going to be, you know, who, who's right? But, but the Torah is so far beyond that, it's so far beyond that because the Torah completely way before the world even began, certainly way before Darwin, embraced this idea of evolution from the outset, which is that the entire fabric of creation itself and human beings themselves are evolving toward perfection. That the world is evolving out of evil, that evil is just this, this test on the road to perfection of the world, which is what God set about to create in the very beginning. And so, and so you have this idea that the Gomorrah says that, that compares the world that we're heading toward, the perfected world, bless him, to like a super wine, like this outrageous wine that's being made. Right? So why wine? Why is it being compared to wine? Because if you figure that the whole exile... And the whole beginning of the process began with eating from a grape. Then some kind of process is, is being made right now that we're getting back to this initial, more perfected form of the grape. And one of my favorite Torahs that Reb Shlomo said so beautifully, he said, and again, you, he didn't put it in, in this way, but but we can just sort of add a, a lens to view the, 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 the teaching we're about to learn in, in a moment. You can see this as a, as a paradigm for all of history. That he said, do you know what a grape has to go through before it becomes wine? How much it has to get stomped on, right? And he said that, um, he said, he said, Everyone loves a finished product, 
You know, people love you when you're a grape and people love you when you're wine. But who loves you when you're in between? <laughs> right? He said, those are your real friends. And so I just want to add to that and say that right now the world is in between. The world is in this process. And the people who love God right now during this process, where there's still all sorts of questions, like how could there be so much injustice and evil and suffering and all the rest, the people who hold on to God now, these are his true friends. Right? While the world is in between. Now I want to continue to, to develop this. Because in this week's Parsha, there's, uh, there's something very, very, very interesting. And um, before, we, before we get to that, before we get to that, let me just um, give you a, a, a bit of a chronology leading up to the, the Parsha after the uh, Jewish, the, after the receiving of the Torah, which is the whole um, Parsha's Mishpatim and, and the whole discussion of the Evidivri, the Jewish slave. And, and, and how that ties into all of this. But, but let's, just, let's just take a moment and, and, and develop it uh, a little more step by step, okay? So the idea is like this. Very interestingly, I heard from Reb Shlomo, he said in the name of the Zohar, that, you know, God begins the world again. One of the most fascinating aspects of the Torah and the way it develops is the first parsha of the Torah is Breshit, right? That's, that's creation. and talks about the whole Garden of Eden and everything like that. And the next parsha is Parshas Noach, which is when the flood comes and destroys the world. So the very first parsha, God is creating the world. The very second parsha, portion of the week, God is destroying the world. It's, it's, it's amazing. And there's endless teachings that come from that from that progression. But anyway, that aside, when Noah gets out of the ark, what's the very first thing that he does? He plants a grape vineyard. And he drinks wine, he gets drunk, and he falls spiritually and gets, gets ruined, basically. This new start gets ruined. And so I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Zohar that what Noah was trying to do was to correct the sin of Adam and Eve by planting this vineyard and treating it in a way in a way that somehow Adam and Eve didn't do in terms of respecting it because they sinned with a grape, right? And here, the world is starting anew. He's getting out the ark. Everything is new. He plants a vineyard to go and to try to correct whatever Adam and Chava did wrong. Very fascinating that it goes back to the great, no? Now, now, let's cut to this week. We've just received the Torah at Mount Sinai. And it says in the Talmud, an amazing teaching, that when we got the Torah at Mount Sinai, we all came together and we were all completely unified. And that spiritually we rose to the level of Adam and Eve before we ate from the tree of knowledge. So there was this unbelievable level of, of fixing that went on. I mean, unbelievable. It was like the highest, right? Through Torah, 
we came to fix everything. Almost, almost. But we weren't quite able to stay at that level long enough because God tested us just like he tested Adam and Eve, this time with the golden calf. And if you study the incident of the golden calf, it almost exactly parallels the eating from the tree of knowledge with Adam and Eve. It's an amazing series of correlations between the two. So now listen to this. While we were still, before we do the whole event with the, 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 the Chet Egel, the golden calf, we're still at that level of Adam and Eve before the eating from the tree of knowledge. The first halacha, the first law that we get in Parshas Mishpatim, which is the portion of the week after the receiving of the Torah, is the law of the Eved Ivri. So what's the whole thing with the Eved Ivri? So that's a, that's a Hebrew slave. And the whole notion of um, slavery in the Torah is not our contemporary notion of people being whipped in the fields and, you know, horribly treated and everything like that. The, the Torah's vision of, of uh, servitude was a very enlightened, very interesting social dynamic that, 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 that we simply don't have anymore. And just to give you a, a couple of uh, ideas, insights into it, whatever food the master ate, the slave had to eat. So that already gives you an idea of a level of equity that's, that's um, you know, very, very different from our contemporary notion of slavery. Also, it says that if there was only one pillow, the slave had to get it, not the master. Not only that, but it said that one who takes on a slave, there was a saying, one who takes on a slave is like taking on a master. So in other words, there were so many refined mechanisms to protect the dignity of this worker that it was, it, it was a completely different institution. So you just have to understand that, okay? Now, who, who became a slave in this context? Um, it was most often someone who stole and didn't have the money to repay. So they would work off their debt. So interestingly, I heard from Reb Shlomo something so deep. So again, you might ask yourself, we just received the Torah at Mount Sinai. And now, here's the next portion. We're learning, I think it's 54 different mitzvahs in, in, in this parsha of Mishpatim. It's a lot, all in one spot. We've just received the Torah. You're teaching me about the law of the Hebrew slave, someone who stole? That seems like a very weird, obscure place to start. And so the answer is, is that Adam and Eve, because they were told not to eat from the tree, they were on the level of thieves. Because they were told not to do that and that they didn't have rights to that or access to that and they took it anyway, that's counted as theft. Isn't that interesting? And I'll tell you something else. You want to hear a very strong teaching? The sages say that someone who eats food without making a blessing on it first is stealing. All right? So it's very important to say blessings on food before you eat them. Right? Because otherwise, because, because God is giving it to you anyway. 
But there's this transference where you acknowledge that it's God's and that God is giving it to you. And that's an important step. Right? Did you ever say to anyone, like, especially to a kid, I would have given it to you. Just ask me first. Right? Like, it's just like weird seeing you reaching into my wallet. I'll give it to you. Okay, but just ask me first. Right? So it's... So, I mean, that's just to put it in a visceral here and now place. But in terms of God, there's a, there's a step before Eden. And if you think about it, it's a very rational, logical, wholesome step before Eden, which is just saying, God, thank you. This food all comes from you. It's all yours. Thank you for giving it to me. You know, that, that level of acknowledgement. So, so, again, when we receive the Torah at Mount Sinai... The sages teach that we reached the level of Adam and Eve before we ate from the tree of knowledge. So now, within that context, we can understand why we're learning about the Hebrew slave right now. Because right now, we're, we're in this process of doing all the fixing that we needed to do, because Adam and Eve were like thieves who still have to repay their debt. So, so now we, we, we can understand the context of that. Not only that, but the Zohar brings on this Pasuk that these are the laws of reincarnation. That all of these laws that we're learning, all these civil laws and, and financial laws that we're about to learn in Parshas Mishpatim, all have to do with reincarnation. And that, that um, oftentimes some of the economic questions that we have in our own lives are playing outs of previous life debts and things that are owed to us or things that we owe to others and things like this. So that's very interesting. And with that in mind, I wanted to offer a, um, an explanation of something from the Talmud. It says that there are certain questions in Gomorrah Shabbos, they list a series of questions that we're going to be asked by the heavenly court after, after our lifetime. And famously, the very first question that we're asked is, did we do business bemuna, faithfully, trustfully? In other words, did we do business honestly? That would be a, a free translation, but... So you, you might ask, wow... That's really weird that that's the first question that I'm asked in heaven. Did I do business honestly? I mean, I, I would understand that that would be one of the questions, but that's the first question? So I want to give an explanation of that in light of the fact that in Parshish Mishpatim, which are going to go through a lot of civil laws and economic laws, the fact that the Zohar says in the very beginning of this that these are the laws of reincarnation, right? That this is, that when we go to the heavenly court, one of the things that's, that's going to be decided, one of the first things that's going to be decided is whether or not we're going to be reincarnated again or not. And since a lot of that decision is based on our economic behavior during our lifetime and how honest we were in terms of handling money, so it would make sense that it would be the very first question that they're asking. Because the bigger question is, when we stand before the heavenly court, what's our fate going to be? Are we going to be reincarnated? Right? 
We're going just straight to Gan Eden? What, what's our status? So that's a, just a way of contextualizing that question, why that may be the first question that we're asked. All right, but I want to continue to develop this idea and to see really all of history as this development of wine and as a grape, right? So we see, we see the next step. And I was sort of very happy about this thought. This is a, a new thought for me. I think, I don't know, I've never seen this written or, or discussed by anyone. So, so anyway, in that spirit, um, we have the next step. After Parshas Mishpatim, we have uh, Parshas Truma. Truma is really, really interesting. Really, really interesting. Because that's now all about the building of the Mishkan. The Mishkan was the prototype of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. While we were still in the desert, we had this collapsible, kind of you could take it apart and build it and travel with it, but it was like the equivalent of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. It was a portal between heaven and earth. But more than that, more than that, it was a miniature of the perfected universe. Not just of the perfected universe, bless you, but also of the perfected human being. And of course, it makes sense that those two things should overlap. Because we said that each person is a miniature world. So when you perfect yourself, on some level, you do perfect the world. Right? And, and I always love to share this little parable. I wish I could tell you who told it. I, I don't know. And I didn't read it in a, I don't even think in a Jewish context. But, so I don't know who it's from. But it's, it's very beautiful and certainly very consistent with, with, with Torah values. And so the, the, this is just, again, to show you the overlap between the Mishkan representing on one hand the perfected human and also the perfected world. So a father comes home and he's extremely tired. He's just, he doesn't have any strength whatsoever from a hard day at work. And he's uh, sitting in his chair and his child comes up and says, you know, really wants to play with the father. And the father just doesn't have any strength and he just uh, wants to buy himself a little bit of time. So he sees that there's a map of the world, a very complicated map. And so he turns it into a jigsaw puzzle. He rips it into a lot of different pieces and then he hands it to the child and he says, you know, when you can put together this map, then we'll play. So he figures he's bought himself a, a lot of time. And the child comes right back and he says, I did it. And the, the father can't believe it. He looks at it and it's, he, he's right. He absolutely did it. He said, how did you do that? He says, well, he says, it was easy. There was a picture of a human being on the other side. And when I put the picture of the person together, the whole world fell into place. And so, so it makes sense that the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the desert, was simultaneously a microcosm of a human being, a perfected vision of the human being, and the perfected version, miniature of the world. And it says that God rejoiced when he built the Mishkan, when the Mishkan was built by us, I guess, you know, through his direct dictates, as much as when he created the entire world. All right, so... So and but there's 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 so many deep things going on in the Mishkan. Uh, 
because you had all sorts of miracles taking place in the Mishkan. And by the way, if you want to see another parallel, this also came to me one time, another parallel between the, the creation of the Mishkan and, and of the world, have something very, very fascinating, which is that we've got a teaching that it, it says, it says that Moshe Rabbeinu, because remember, this was built in parts, and we were supposed to travel with it. So it was built in such a way that we could take it down, travel with it, and, and put it up again. Okay? So it says that it was dedicated on the first day of Nisan, the month of Nisan. But then it says something really interesting. And that was the, that was the eighth day. So what were the first seven days? So starting in, at the end of Adar, it says that Moshe put it up and then took it down. Put it up, took it down, put it up, took it down, put it up, took it down. He did that for seven days. And on the eighth day, he put it up, and that was the dedication, right? Now, what did we just say? That the Mishkan is a miniature of the entire world, right? A microcosm of the perfected world. Isn't it interesting that we have a very mystical teaching from the Medrash that before God created this world, he created and destroyed many worlds, Do you see how that's exactly paralleled in the construction of the Mishkan? Putting it up and taking it down. Putting it up and taking it down. The creation of worlds and worlds before this world. So very, very, very striking. Bless you. So so now, here's the part, and I want to continue with this this, uh, overview, this, this narrative of the role that wine has played and grapes have played in new beginnings and how we're trying to get our pure inside to manifest itself on the outside. Okay, so now we have the next chapter. And this, I think, is a, is a new thought. So, so if you look at the account of the dedication of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle in the desert, there's an event that mars it. Okay? Um, and that's the death of Nadav and Avihu. Aaron's, who is the high priest, right, the Kohen Gunnel, Aaron's two eldest sons, who were super amazing, like total superstars, and were destined to take over the Jewish people, Nadav and Avihu. We don't hear much, we don't hear their names too often, because they died young, and they died before they were able to attain their, their true place, Right? And there are many reasons given for why they died. Many reasons, maybe 10 different reasons why they died, okay? But the one that's perhaps the most straightforward, and the one that Rashi brings, and the one that the Torah itself seems to suggest is the main reason, right? Is that they got drunk on wine before they went and they did the the, the order of the offerings in the Mishkan. Because it says, it talks about the, the passage in the Torah says that, that Nadav and Avihu died, and then the next thing it says is, don't get drunk before you offer things in the temple. <laughs> so in terms of the juxtaposition, they say, well, they must have, they must have drank wine. Now that's really interesting if you think about it, isn't it? 
Because here we have this idea that the whole world in miniature is starting again. Right? And so we have this playing field again where there's another new start. Just like in the Garden of Eden. Just like when Noah gets off the ark and it's a new world. Now we've got a miniature of the perfected world. Then it says God rejoiced when the Mishkan was dedicated, like when he created the entire world. We've got a brand new start again. And not even of you who are walking in for the opening offering, drunk on wine. Grapes. Grapes strike again. Right? So what is it? What is it about grapes? What is it about wine? So it says, it says that when you drink wine, you forget about God. And one of the interesting minhagim that I learned from Reb Shlomo, very beautiful, deep idea, that when you raise your cup for Kiddush, when you make Kiddush, right, that's the blessing over the wine, when you testify that God created the entire world, that you're supposed to lift the wine cup to the level of your heart. Because wine makes the heart forget. And now you're, at this moment, with wine, testifying, meaning remembering, that God created the whole world. So now your heart is being allowed through wine, which normally makes the heart to forget, to actually have an opportunity to remember. So that's, that's very deep and interesting. So, so now, this leads us to Purim. And Purim is really fascinating because, I mean, Purim is, is the main holiday of, of the exile, um, in my opinion. Because Purim is all about how God is directing all of our activities, even when it looks like he's completely hidden and not with us. And then it becomes revealed that not only is God there, but God was there the entire time, through the entire process, just concealed. So so what is the... What is the miracle of the redemption of Purim done over? A wine banquet. <laughs> right? Esther goes to Ahasuerus, and it's her plan to try to save the Jewish people from this horrible decree from Haman. And it's, it's this amazing thing. You know, there's this great book that I'm almost done reading, and I highly, highly recommend it, from Rabbi David Foreman, called The Queen You Thought You Knew. And it's, it's fantastic. I, I highly, highly recommend this. And, um, and he, he writes in, a, in a, a wonderful style. It's a very breezy, almost chatty type style. And yet, so it's a very, very easy reading. At the same time, though, he's asking phenomenal questions. <laughs> so it's really the best of both worlds, where it's sort of like you get, wow, you know, you just hit all these amazing questions. Here's one of the questions that he asks. We have, um, 
And, and he makes a, a very good point, which is that we're so used to reading the Megillah and we're so, we're so used to the story that we think that the story is normal and that all of the different plot points in, in the way it unfolded are sort of normal. Oh, yeah, because that's, that's what we're used to. But he has a wonderful way of sort of like taking ten, ten steps back and saying, but that, does that really make sense that that happened the way it did? And does that really make sense? And he, his, his, he really pinpoints all these great moments. And so one, one moment that he pinpoints, one question that he asks is a great question. And he says that, you know, here um, uh, Mordechai finds out about the decree. Esther finds out about the decree, but Mordechai already knew. So, which is, which is that uh, Haman has issued this proclamation sealed by the king's signet ring, which means it's, it's absolute law and it can't be revoked, that the Jewish people are going to be exterminated in something like 11 months. A lot of people aren't familiar with the timeline. They think that it was imminent. It's actually in 11 months. And part of the reason was so that the Jews should be terrified because he didn't, it was like a form of torture. He didn't want them just to be wiped out. He wanted them also to be terrified before they got wiped out. So that's a, an interesting uh, side note. Um, but, but Mordechai says to Esther, you, um, you have to go in and see the king right away. And so Esther says, well, you know, there's this law that anyone who goes to see the king who hasn't been, you know, scheduled to see the king uh, receives the death penalty unless the king offers his scepter, in which case they're okay. But, but the king hasn't called me for a period of time. He's due to call me. And when he does, then I'll bring it up. You know, it doesn't make any sense since I'm a great asset to this. You know, I'm, in, I'm inside the palace. I'm married to the king. I'm a great advocate of the Jewish people, or I will be. Why do we want to risk my life? I could be killed, and then, you know, then I'm gone, and then we're, we're really in trouble. And Mordecai says, no, you have to go right now. No, you have to risk your life, and you have to go right now. So, and, and then he says something even more amazing. He says... If you don't do it, don't worry. Salvation is going to come. God is going to send it from some other place. Which is an amazing thing. You know, it's sort of like, you know, you talk about taking the pressure off. In, in, in a weird way, it's sort of like, it is incumbent upon us to basically save the world. Every one of us. But you know what? If we don't do it, don't worry. God's going to do it anyway. And then he says it even further. He says, who knows that, that, that you weren't created exactly for this moment, and if you don't do it, you're going to be destroyed. You and your house will be destroyed. So, so, so now Esther agrees, and the best explanation that I heard, which I really liked, was that, that, that because there was a death decree on the Jewish people, in order for her to be able to reverse it, she had to risk her own life. In other words, it's like mita keneged mita. In other words, in order to get the spiritual leverage to be able to overturn this type of death decree, you have to put your own life on the line, and then that will give you the power to be able to deflect it. If you don't have much on the line, how are you going to be able to deflect this massive death 
decree on the entire Jewish people. You hear, so, so it's almost like this spiritual judo that she was accessing, you know? Anyway, but none of this is, is, is the point. The, 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 the point is the following that Rabbi Foreman brings up, which is that Esther fasts for three days and she puts a, a the, she, she tells the entire Jewish people to fast for her for three days. And by the way, even more amazing, all of this takes place during Pesach. A lot of people don't realize that Purim happened on Pesach. And the dates themselves are in the Megillah. These are, not, these are not side teachings. This is right in the Megillah itself. Which means that seemingly we didn't eat matzah that year on Pesach, which is one of the Torah mitzvahs. And Esther's logic was, there's not going to be a Jewish people anywhere to keep any of the mitzvahs. So, you know... Uh, again, you know, I, I always say, whenever I bring up this point, if you asked me, I would have said, we have to have the best Seder ever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, really check that lettuce. You know, no bugs. You know, every bite of, every bite of matzah has to be with the greatest kavana, the greatest, highest, holiest thoughts. You know, but she said, no, sorry. No matzah. We're, we're, we're fasting for three days. And, of course, she is right. Her, her. Her way of thinking was, was higher than what I'm telling you. So, so anyway, here's the point. After three days of fasting, and it says that she was so weak she could hardly walk, okay? So she comes before the king. You would think at that moment, she says, and the king holds his scepter, right? She risks her life. The king extends his golden scepter so everything is cool. All right, she passed by that test. So what should come now, logically? So says Rabbi Foreman, she should now say, there's a death decree on me and the entire Jewish people. Can you please rescind it? Right? Isn't that logical? Isn't that what everything has been building up to? And yet, what does she say? I'd like to invite you and Haman to a wine feast. <laughs> what? It's funny because we read it every year and it goes, oh yeah, of course she invites them to a wine feast. No, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. All right? So anyway, I, I don't want to give you a synopsis of the entire book. You have to get the book yourself, the, the queen you thought you knew. But, but what I just want to focus in on is just that how interesting that it's a wine feast. And you know, there is this idea of getting drunk on Purim. Getting to the place where you don't, where you're beyond Das. Das, now remember, what is the tree of knowledge? What's that called? The Eitz Hadas, the tree of knowledge. You're supposed to drink to this place where, where, where Das, where knowledge is like, you're transcending knowledge, basically. That knowledge is just this, kind of like this, um, this milestone to the, to, to, to the mind's ability to, to, to grasp to the extent that we can the infinite. That the rational, that rational consciousness is this intermediary zone. And it's one that we have to function in and we have to master. But we have to understand that, that, that enlightenment and expanded consciousness goes beyond just the rational. 
And so interestingly, the wine that we drink on Purim, and just to just so you fully understand what I'm trying to say here, it says at the end of the Purim story that we reaccepted the Torah on a deeper level than that we did at Mount Sinai. Now what does it say? It says that when we accepted the Torah initially, we got to the level of Adam and Chava before they ate from the tree of knowledge, before they ate the grape, if you will. Right? And now, on Purim, where we re-accept the Torah on an even deeper level, we're now using wine to get to this place beyond the tree of knowledge, beyond Das, beyond the Eitzah Das, to completely transcend. So this is why, by the way, just on a very practical level, you know, you should obviously be responsible when you drink and how you fulfill this mitzvah. There are different opinions how you fulfill it. There's definitely an opinion, according to halacha, that you can take a nap because when you're sleeping, you, you don't have this level of rational thought. And so you can fulfill it that way. The mitzvah is not to throw up and to embarrass yourself or to disgrace the community. It's certainly not to drive and to endanger other lives while you do it. You know, it's, a, it's not really to do it even on liquor or vodka or whatever it is. The idea is wine. And if you can do it in a controlled setting where it's not going to, um, you know, be a, a, an issue, then go ahead. But you have to have all of these parameters in mind. Um, I heard in the name of Rebbe Nachman that you can actually fulfill this through love, which is very interesting. That if you're if you have this outpouring of love for the community, that 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 aspect of love can bring you to this place of uh, uh, transcendent consciousness, which is also very interesting. You know, because love in Hebrew is ava, and ava is the same gematria, the same numerical equivalent as echad, which is one. In other words. Love brings you to oneness. And what we're talking about is that the whole story of creation is the revelation of God's oneness. It's here, it's always been here, it will never not be here, but it needs to be revealed as such. And how do you get to that place of understanding God's oneness? How do you become one with God? How do your insides become manifest to your outside so that you're not some schizophrenic creature. But there's, there's this middle ground and there's this transition, which is the human condition, which is that there has to be, like with wine, a filtering process. You know, there is something called too much information, right? So what we're not, um, what we're not asking is that for everyone to be completely uncensored. That's not the point. You see, this is the, this is the excruciating process of what it is to be a human being and to live in society and to try to be honest and to try to be a member of a community and true to yourself is what do you say and what don't you say? When do you act and when do you not act? And it, I heard in the name of the Ari 
that this was the fundamental thing that was damaged with Adam and Eve, with Adam and Chava. In other words, something happened to us human beings that we don't know when we're supposed to act and we don't know when we're not supposed to act. And if you think about it, what could be more basic to a human being's you know, mode of, of operation than when, knowing when to act and knowing when not to act? I mean, this goes to the core of existence. And so we have to understand that. We, we have to engage and everything like that, but there are parameters, right? Eat from all of the trees and all the fruit except for this one. Make your inside, which is your pure soul, your outside, but not too much information, <laughs> right? That, that filtering process, that, 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 that grape becoming wine, it's not, you don't just hit a grape with a hammer and then it's wine. There's a, there's a process and it's a very controlled process. There's a real, there's an amazing science to making wine. If you, if you know anything about wine, it's, 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 it's very, very complicated, extremely complicated. When to harvest the grapes, how to plant the grapes. In fact, I, I took a wine tour at this um, very fancy uh, winery uh, in Northern California. Um, and uh, the, the person, the tour guide, was just, you know, just talking about the science of grapes. But when they said this to me, it was just sort of like, as Rashi would say, it was, it was begging to be darshaned. It was begging to be, you know, you know um, explained further. What, uh, what the tour guide said was the following, that, that how close you plant the rows of vines is part of the science of making grapes. And the reason is because grapes, the vines have leaves and everything like that. And so if you plant them really close to each other, well, then you can get more vines in a field. So then if you think, if you're just thinking, you know, economically, you think, well, you know, the more vines I have, the more grapes I have, and the more grapes I have, the more wine I have, and then the more money I have. So that, that sounds really good. The problem with that is, is that then the vines have to compete for the water, meaning to say only a certain amount of rain is falling, and then you, you know, they're not going to get enough water. And because they have canopies of leaves and things like this, they're also going to compete for sunlight. Okay, so, so then you want to put them just far enough away, right? Because you want to make good use of your field. So now imagine this. Imagine you have all the land in the world. You say, well, I know what would... Wow, if I had all the land in the world, you know what I would have? I would have each vine so far away from the next vine and all the water and all the sunlight that it, it could ever want. That would be the perfect wine. So she said, listen to this. The tour guide said, if you have that, then you get big fat grapes that are full of water and make terrible wine. Isn't that interesting? And when I heard that, she said that the level of competition, so to speak, really improves the grape. And so I thought to myself, wow, that's, that's talking about us. That's talking about human beings. You know, if you, if you just kind of leave a person completely on their own, what would be the greatest school in the world? Ten teachers, one student... No homework, <laughs> no exams. Wow. You know what you probably have? You probably have this some pot-smoking freak, you know? 
you know, it's like it, you need a level of competition and challenge. Let's put the word challenge instead of competition. That's, that's, that's a better word. You need a level of challenge to bring out the best in a person. You do. You do. And, you know, we, we complain because we say, that's too much challenge, God. <laughs> that's too much. I can't do that. That's too much. But nonetheless, nonetheless, what it, what it allows us to do is to take our insights and to refine them, to filter them, to make excellent wine, to make excellent wine out of our own lives. Right? So, so I just want to go a little bit deeper, which is going back to this, the Purim story. The idea that at the end of Purim, that, that we re-accepted the Torah, which means on some level we got back to this place. See, you see, there are different understandings of what does it mean that we re-accepted the Torah, okay? And it's, it's a bit of an in-depth subject, but let me just give you one, one idea on it, which is that we accepted it at Mount Sinai on the level of Yira. Yira means like awe, but it's sort of translated as fear as well. Okay, that's not the best explanation. It's really awe, but awe as opposed to ava, which is love. But you always need, they call yira and ava, awe and love, fear and love, however you want to translate it, the two wings of the dove. You need both to, to fly. Okay, because you have to have a level of respect in a relationship in order for it to be a real, true relationship, there has to be a level of respect, and that's Yira, right? You can't take the other party for granted. You know, they're not just there for your needs. You, are, you also have to be a giver. And if you want to be a real giver on a very refined level, that requires some awe, you know, some, some Yira, some, some respect in a, in a very meaningful way, and it's... it's it couldn't be more true than in terms of our respect, in terms of our relationship with, with Hashem, with God. So, but it says that at the end of the Purim story, we accepted the Torah with love. And so that was the final completion of the acceptance process, right? But again, the idea, going back to the idea that, that when we accepted it in an even fuller way at the end of Purim, we get back to this level on some, on some level in other words, if we accepted it initially and we got to this level of Adam and Chava before the eating of the tree, then after Purim, then, so to speak, we're in that same place again and we're drinking wine, which is again, each year we get that, we get our moment with wine. Like, you want to say, okay, Noah, Adam and Eve blew it. Noah blew it. Not Adam and Eve blew it. What about me? Welcome to Purim. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> you get your moment. You get your moment with wine. You get your moment with wine. Right? That's, that's intense. That's intense. Purim is your moment with wine. What are you going to do with it? What's going to come out? What aspect of you is going to come out? What secrets are going to come out? What secrets are not going to come out? <laughs> right? What do you get to not say? Because <laughs> it's an opportunity to not say things. 
as, 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 in addition to whatever you need to say or whatever you need to think and whatever you need to transcend. Right? So, so now, but listen to this. This is, this is really intense. So who wants to kill us? So Haman, Haman wants to kill us. And Haman, we know, is a descendant of Amalek. And Amalek is the enemy of the Jewish people, the enemy of God. Amalek wants to wipe us out. So Haman is that completely negative, all embodied in one place, all the negativity of the world embodied in one place. So the Gomorrah in Hulun asks the question, where do you see a hint to Haman in the Torah? Now, remember that, that, that the question, just so you understand the question, the whole event of Haman happens chronologically way after the five books of the Torah. But the Torah is going with the assumption that all of reality is contained within the Torah because the Torah is the infinite compressed into the finite. So everything is contained if you understand how to read the Torah properly. If you have the proper tools, everything is contained within the Torah. So where do you see Haman, who happens thousands of years later, referred to in the Torah? So the sages answer in the passage Hamin Ha'etz, which is Haman. That's, it's not, in that context, it doesn't mean Haman from the Purim story, it's, but it's the same letters and the same, same word. Hamin Ha'etz, it's referring to the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden, which was the grape. And what does it say in the Torah? That when we ate from the tree of knowledge, we brought death into the world. And what did Haman want to do? Bring death to all of us. So isn't it amazing that Haman is referred to in the tree of knowledge, which brings death, which was also a grapevine. And the whole reversal of the story, when it goes from bad to good, is through wine and through grapes. And through the reacceptance of the Torah and getting back to the Garden of Eden and all of us today in our own lives drinking that wine and getting back to that place and learning how to master how to bring our inside to our outside since wine is that which reveals secrets to bring the purity of our own souls to the outside to reveal that oneness which is revealing the oneness of God in this world. Happy Purim.